Anthony Sanchez spent over two decades working as a computer software engineer for major corporations in Silicon Valley with the FBI and elements of the Department of Defense. He became interested in the UFO phenomenon in 1989. He has been researching some of the deeper, darker aspects of UFOs, such as events at the Dulce Archuluta Mesa, a deep underground military base there. He is keeping track with uh, modern developments in UFOs, and he's here to talk about some of his latest research and what lies ahead in the UFO field. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Welcome to Exopolitics Today, Anthony. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Dr. Sala. Now, you have a very interesting background, and I know you go back a long way as far as UFO research is concerned. But first, um, why don't you talk about your professional background so my audience knows exactly what kind of expertise you had and how you got drawn into this field. Right. So I've been developing software predominantly for the semiconductor industry. I did a a bulk of work for Intel Corporation. I later worked for Hewlett-Packard, NEC, and uh, way back in the early 90s, I was the first corporate webmaster for 3Con Corporation. Nobody knew what a webmaster was back in those days. And uh, I've been working as a contractor for the state of California. I did that for, for a number of years. I held a CMAS, a California Multiple Award Schedule, for my own company, which allowed me to bid on projects and get work for the state of California. So I've, I've been developing software for well over 25 years now. So you mentioned in the uh, pre-interview that you had contact experiences as a child, and that was actually something that predisposed you Mm -hmm. for events that happened in 1989 that drew you into the field. So what was it that happened as as a youngster? Right. So that truly was the genesis of my my delving into everything ufological. When I was five years old, there was a um, an incident where, well, there was a solar eclipse. There was a, a, a lunar eclipse, excuse me. And <clears throat> I remember being outside with my mom and our cousin who lived adjacent to us. My mom, was, my parents were very young at the time, so they hadn't yet had their house. They had an apartment complex, and so we were at an apartment complex. And that evening, you know, there was a lot of superstition stuff, talking about the eclipse and, but I remember something drew me out to the field across the street. Uh, this was the following evening of the eclipse. Something drew me out there, and I remember seeing a massive cube, like a black cube, that had like a lighting system. It was massive. It had to have been a half a mile wide. And I just remember see- receiving messages to go out into the field and wait. And all I recall is after seeing that was waking up the next morning and my parents were in a panic because as I walked from the field back towards our home, there was a police car. And my mom was explaining that I had been missing 
And I remember there was a gentleman from the San Jose Mercury News. Uh, he was a del- delivery person. His name was John. He's probably no longer with us anymore, but uh, he, he was a fa- fairly friendly with my parents. And he was in a panic because he said that he had searched the whole neighborhood for me and he couldn't find me. So that was the first incident. Then uh, a couple of years later, I remember being uh, at, at a family member's home and all of the children were asleep in the living room. We had sleeping bags. It was kind of like a, we were having a family get together and the parents were staying up late at night doing something, God knows what, in the other room, you know, playing cards, chatting, singing music. Around three o'clock in the morning, I remember waking up. I felt like a vibration and I heard I heard like a humming sound, and when I opened my eyes, I saw my cousin. She was uh, on a couch that was adjacent to the, the, the living room windows, and all the lights were off, but there was something happening outside, and she looked at me, and she had signaled to me you know, the, hush, the hush sign, and I crawled up on the couch with her. And remember, I was barely seven years old at the time. I looked out. And she had been observing two greys. There were two greys outside holding some sort of like a tablet or like equipment. And sure enough, we looked towards the, the high school that they were building at the time, Independence High School, which, which was supposed to have been a junior college for a 4,000, it was a 4,000 student campus. It ended up being the largest high school in San Jose. But it was being constructed at the time. And there in the field was a ship. It was a small saucer craft. Um, not like the sport model like Bob Lazar claims it, which is a classic saucer. This was more contemporary in its design. It, it looked like futuristic. It looked like nothing I'd ever seen before. But remarkably, it was the same color as the cube that I had seen. These grays that we were watching were conducting a survey or doing something until they noticed us. And when they saw us watching them, they seemed to like pack up whatever it was they had, and then they left. They went back towards the ship. And that was frightening because as they were leaving, the humming sound grew louder and the vibration started. Now, I wonder, I wonder in retrospect if that was the ship that was causing that. But the vibrations uh, were bothering me and my cousin. We both felt it. And the next thing I knew, I woke up. I woke up and hours had passed. It's as if I, I don't recall from the moment that they were leaving and the, the, the hum began to increase in volume and vibration. Um, I don't know what happened. So at this point, I remember telling my mom about these incidents. And before I knew it, I was in therapy. And I think that's common with a lot of children that report seeing creatures, uh, non-human entities, or having sightings of UFO craft that they ultimately end up in therapy. Uh, I did for years. I was in therapy for years. And um, I had a couple of more incidents And by the way, I wrote about all of these for the first time ever. I wrote about these in detail in my book, UFO Nexus. Uh, I had a friend of mine, uh, Rick Prestel, 
who's a MUFON member who I met back in 2010 at a MUFON meeting, who's an excellent UFO researcher. He, he's independent. He works on his own. But he and I have been friends for over a decade now, and I had him conduct an analysis uh, from from a outside perspective of the events that I had witnessed as a child. Probably the most uh, significant event of my life was we were leaving a San Francisco Giants game. This is a baseball game in South San Francisco, and it had been I think it had been a doubleheader. We were it was late at night. We were heading back to San Jose. And we were just passing Moffett Field. And there was Hangar 1, which was a massive hangar, a very famous hangar. And I remember the cars in front of us were slowing down. This is on the freeway. And I, it kind of jarred us uh, you know, to, to having gone from 70 miles an hour. We were now slowing down to 45, 30 miles an hour. You know, somewhere in that range, it was like, it was just very jarring. So I got up. My little brother was asleep in the back. My uncle and my dad were in the front seat. And I look over to my left, and I literally pressed my face on the window because it was a massive disc hovering above the ground just outside the doors of Hangar 1. Now, here's what's interesting. It was wider than Hangar 1. The doors to Hangar 1 were open. Uh, by the way, Hangar 1 is such an interesting uh, hangar, it literally takes an entire day for these doors to open and to close. So it was open in the evening. This It had to have been past midnight. We were leaving South San Francisco. The game was over. And you could see the silhouette of the individuals running around, driving around beneath the disc. And I remember that the disc had like a uh, dark metallic color to it. But the bottom of it it seemed liquefied almost, like it was rotating, like it was rotating, um, hovering, allowing this uh, this craft to hover. And it, before we knew it, it was gone. And all the other cars that were on the freeway had come to a complete stop. And I remember there were people. Now remember, this is this, this is in the uh, early '80s, late '70s, early '80s. There were people taking flash photography. So somebody has photographs of what happened that night. And I asked my father, I said, I said, Dad, do you think this is going to be in the paper? And he's like, I have no idea. Uh, subsequently, um, I remember bringing this up in therapy when we, we had group therapy, we had family therapy. Uh, and I brought it up. And I, again, I was shut down. But my dad, my dad saw what I saw, my uncle saw what I saw, and my brother unfortunately was asleep. He was tiny at the time; he was, he was little, and um, that was a huge event for me because I, I, I felt like, is there something wrong with me? Why am I continually, continually seeing non, you know, otherworldly type events? These incidents, you know, first. There was the cube. Then there were these grays with a ship over at Independence High School. Then there was this this massive UFO outside of Hangar 1. Uh, the other event that happened to me that was really uh, uh, profound uh, was I had gone to Point Reyes. Are you familiar with Point Reyes? It's north of San Francisco. I'd gone on a hiking, uh, on a camping trip. It was a weekend camping trip. 
And I remember on one of the evenings that we were there, I had climbed over this hill, and in the water, there was something illuminating the water. It was massive in size. And I was frozen. I, I remember being frozen. I couldn't move, but I was able to focus on what I was seeing. And before I knew it, a massive illuminated sphere um, lifted out of the water, hovered, and then it just left. And again, same as all the other incidents, uh, except for, except for the Moffat Field incident. This was the, this was the Moffat Field incident was the only time where I didn't fall asleep and like lose time. It's as if I was just witnessing it in real time with my family. But the Point Reyes incident, like the Independence High School incident, and like the Cube incident, which happened the day after the uh, the lunar eclipse, I lost time. I I I I woke up hours later on the beach, nowhere near the, our tent and our sleeping bags, and there was a group of uh, counselors that were from San Jose State that were taking all of us kids out there, and we had a great time. But I was I was shocked by what I had seen, and for years I tried not to go outside. I tried to avoid seeing you know uh, seeing the night sky. I became a little bit uh, apprehensive about going outside at night. I no longer wanted to have these encounters. But by 1989, and for the first time, really hearing other people finally hit the media with their stories, with their narratives about what they were experiencing. And in particular, in 1989, it was about uh, Bob Lazar, John Lear, what they had seen. I forget the other gentleman's name, but what they had seen at the black mailbox. Um, and then ultimately, I started following the work of Norio Hayakawa. So I became really interested, and I said, okay, what I saw growing up, other people saw. Other people have seen what I've seen. I'm not alone. And, you know, I was aware of the Betty and Barney Hill incident at that time. So as the years went on, and as in 1997, the Phoenix Light happened, 10 years later, Stevensville, Texas, um, I became convinced that we are witnessing something that is embarking on uh, revealing itself. We're on the cusp of a major revelation. So that's why... I have decided to really thrust myself into uh, writing uh, within the sphere of ufological events, incidents, history. Uh, in 2009, I started writing a book about Area 51. It was called UFO Highway. The book was meant to be about UFO, about, about Area 51. And uh, before, uh, Anthony, <clears throat> before we talk about UFO yeah. Highway, I, I'm just very interested in some of these incidents you had while uh, very young. And, yeah, that incident where at Moffat Field, uh, Hangar One, that mm -hmm. was seen by your 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 father and your uncle. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think that was a extraterrestrial craft, or do you think it may have been some kind of reverse engineered craft? This is funny. I used to think, at the time, I used to think that it was a craft of a top secret nature, something that had been developed by the military industrial complex. But in retrospect or in hindsight, as I look back at the event that night, the people beneath the craft, the silhouettes of the individuals, they were terrified. 
And to have been in a terrified state, running around as they were that evening, I now think that it wasn't something that we built. I think it was something of a non-human intelligence, a craft, potentially an extraterrestrial craft, or uh, potentially a, a, a terrestrial a terrestrial non-human entity, technological craft. But by that, are we talking like uh, an inner Earth craft? Is that correct? Okay. Previously, you had referenced the 1989 leaked Majestic 12 document that described four extraterrestrial types. This was released to the public by Heather Wade in 2017, uh, who was a producer for Midnight in the Desert with uh, Art Bell, uh, the show that he had prior to passing away. Um, but the document had described Earth-like humanoids, uh, small humanoids, which are greys, um, non-humanoid EBEs, the, these are the insectoids and the reptilians, and the fourth being the transmorphic entities. Uh, in, essence, it's the, in essence, those are the entities, uh, or they're, they're not physical beings or creatures uh, existing in perhaps some other dimension or plane, um, not in our space or time. That's, that's, the, that's the description of the transmorphic entities. But I, I tend to think of them in, in another... Are you familiar with the writing of uh, Mac Tony's or John Keel? These are the crypto... The Mac Tony's had written the, uh, the crypto-terrestrials, and uh, John Keel had written uh, the ultra-terrestrials. A little bit different between the way they both describe these uh, these entities. Um, for instance, Tony's work uh, stopped short of defining the exact nature and the intentions of the crypto terrestrials. So it kind of leaves it open to what it is, what they might actually be. Uh, he hints at the possibility that they could be indigenous humanoids. Uh, when when I think of indigenous humanoids, I think of like Atlanteans. I don't think of progenitors or Anunnaki because to me, progenitors and Anunnaki are extraterrestrial. They're not indigenous. And there may be other types of similar to the Atlanteans. Um, his, uh, his hypothesis suggests that uh, they're a sister race, a parallel race, developing uh, advanced technology uh, in response to us. Uh, I remember him uh, terming it as human numerical dominance, meaning we are now the dominant species on the planet. We are outnumbering all other intelligent species, uh, in particular these indigenous humanoids. So the advanced technology that they may have developed clearly has surpassed human capabilities. So when I think of Moffat Field that night, and I think of that disc hovering outside of Hangar 1, and then when I think of 2004, the Tic Tac uh, UFO witnessed by the USS Princeton, the USS Nimitz, um, or 1964 with Lonnie Zamora seeing the egg-shaped UFO that had been situated on a tripod, which hovered, the tripod uh, retracted into the ship. There were no visible, uh, there were no visible uh, uh, protrusions of the ship, and it it left without a traditional, or excuse me, a conventional propulsion system. There are craft that exist that our government is no longer denying the existence of. 
In fact, they're holding congressional hearings for the first time in 50 years. I talk about that in UFO Nexus. It was in 1966 when they had the first UFO uh, hearing. Uh, in 68, they had the Condon Committee. And then in 69, they had a, an official UFO committee. I think it was Gerald Ford at the time who was he wasn't president, but he was the uh, the minority uh, leader in the House uh, who was also involved with, with that whole, uh, you know, that whole uh, sphere of congressional hearings. Um, we're, we're, I, I just think that some of the things that I've seen personally can factor into things that other people have seen. And, and it makes sense that we are now, you know, what, 50 years later, 40, 30 years later, after people were being humiliated and ridiculed over what they were reporting. Uh, for instance, in 2004, on the USS Princeton, uh, Kevin Day, who was a radar specialist, he witnessed exactly what David Fravers saw and uh, David Fravers' co-pilot uh, with regards to the uh, the Tic Tac UFO. You know, they were part of the USS Nimitz. He was a specialist on the USS Princeton. But in his case, he was ridiculed. His, his political, excuse me, his military career was at risk, put at risk over the fact that he was talking about what he saw what they had physically recorded. And um, David Crush, go ahead. So I was going to say, um, you know, there, there has been quite a remarkable transition and you you, you do have to ask, and you know, we, we will get to this. Mm. I, I think you do have to ask whether this is part of a deeper program because we've moved out of what was clearly uh, an effort to ridicule the topic, to get the general public to dismiss it, mm. to now where all of a sudden there's been a, a, a 180. Now the agencies and even with the Congress, the Pentagon, the White House are doing so much to get the public interested on this topic as a uh, national security threat. And so, you know, if you think about it, how, how does a public, how does a, how does an, an entire country or even a planetary civilization go from UFOs are a joke, nonsense, mm-hmm. anyone that talks about them, that they're tinfoil hats, they should be, you know, they're in a, they should be in a psychiatric institution, to all of a sudden, like, no, UFOs are serious national security. It doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. It has to be a, a few years of conditioning to, to, to overcome that. And I think that's where we are at the moment. But you know, we'll talk about that more. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that you had mentioned conditioning. You know, obviously, from the 1950s on, little by little, society had been conditioned by Hollywood, by the media, by television, to familiarize themselves and become acquainted with the concept of non-human entities, of flying saucers. Um, you know, a lot of people don't realize it, but the term UAP is not a new term. New, it's not an acronym that just popped up out of nowhere back in 2022, in May of 2022, when they had the um, first meeting on on UAPs, uh, the first in 50 years. Uh, the, the term UAP actually goes all the way back to the 1960s. So, I mean, that's interesting to me. But they're adopting the term UAP now because of the stigma associated with the term, with the acronym UFO, you know, there's such a negative, there's such a negative stigma and attachment to the, to the term UFO or aliens 
To do away with that, what we're seeing now is the government is taking an interest in UAPs. You never hear them utter the word aliens. Rather, you hear them utter the term non-human entities, non-human intelligence. And it was in the Wilson uh, memo. If, if, you, if, you, if you go back and look at the Wilson memo, which surfaced, I think it was in 2021, um, there they had mentioned the term aliens, uh, uh, alien craft or something to that effect. I don't recall it exactly at the moment. But there have been incidents where leaks have occurred, and they've been pretty profound. They have reached the point where those observing, those reviewing, have asked themselves, if the government is now making commentary on what we've already known all along, of what we've known all along, um, how is it going to affect society? You know, in, in November, in the weekend of 17th and 18th of November, they had the Soul Conference, the Soul Symposium in Stanford. And one of the documents, it was a PowerPoint presentation that uh, U.S. Army Colonel Carl Nell was uh, showing, essentially outlined um, dis- the disclosure process, how they were by 2030 going to eventually let the public know to an extent, about UAP, UAP technology, and perhaps uh, non-human entities. Remember some of the terminology that was discovered was a hierarchy of beings, prime directive, and that's similar to what we hear in uh, typical sci-fi narratives. So are, is, is what was occurring at the Soul Symposium more conditioning is it part of a psyop, a psychological operation? I don't know, but we need to continue asking for transparency. We need to continue championing the cause of openness so that we can g- gain greater access to the information that our military and uh, various facets of academia and the scientific communities are discussing behind doors. Yes, well, I think that the the big risk is that uh, the UFO or the UAP phenomenon, as it's now being defined, is taken seriously from 2004, and everything that occurred previously is dismissed as tinfoil hat uh, territory. And what what they're doing is that they're bringing out a lot of these uh, scientists like uh, uh, Avi Loeb and mm. Eric Davis and uh, Gary Nolan, a lot of these scientists who who want to really focus on this is a science uh, phenomenon. This is something where we need hard facts and evidence and, uh, and and we need instrumentation, we need calibration, you know, to, to really look at the whole phenomenon through the lens of a, sci- a scientist's worldview. I mean, it's like, well, I mean, really, it, that's nonsense uh, because from the very beginning, this was not a scientific uh, phenomenon. It was a deep national security phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, you, you, I mean, the incidents you described kind of like illustrate that, uh, people, there were extraterrestrials in those craft that you experienced when you were five, when you were seven. Uh, there were beings piloting that craft out of that, um, that, uh, hangar one, um, at Moffat, uh, field. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you mentioned the interest you had 
in the Dolce facility with right. uh, Norio Hayakawa. And, and to me, that's one of the things, one of the topics that fascinated me, that there are these deep underground military bases where you have extraterrestrials and uh, corporate um, personnel and military personnel working together. And it's like, well, I mean, <laughs> that that is just astounding. And you, you spent quite a bit of time doing research and wrote a book about it. So mm-hmm. well, what did you find out about the Dulce facility? And tell us about your UFO Highway book. Right. So one of the most interesting things that I found about uh, the Dulce facility <clears throat> is the fact that over the years, I have befriended many of the families that live in Dulce. These are the Hickory Apache and I met with Nancy Collado, Waylon Collado. These are two former tribal police officers. Nancy's grandfather was a president of the uh, of the Hickory uh, Tribal Council, and I believe it was a great uncle who was also a president at one time. So I've taken a real interest in meeting with these people, understanding their culture, and trying to gain insight as to why. There's this enigma around the entire area and this history that goes all the way back to 1940 with this Murak expedition, which I learned from this Colonel X who was working at the Dulce facility and who met with Phil Schneider. You know, uh, Darcy Weir, who did the documentary on Phil Schneider, had contacted me for several months trying to get me involved with his documentary, and unfortunately, I couldn't because I was bound to a contract that I was, somebody had bought the option to the book UFO Highway, and I was asked not to participate in this movie, this documentary. But Darcy Weird did an outstanding uh, film, and uh, which was just a collection of research into the entire Phil Schneider aspect of the story. You know, there's a whole nother story. There's the there's the John Lear aspect of the story, which talks about Thomas Costello, of whom he learned about through Anne West, whose real name is Shirley Hinkle. She and I didn't get along at the time because I was doing my own independent investigation of everything that I had learned of Dulce based on the information that I had received from Colonel X. So when I looked into the Thomas Costello aspect, my investigation turned up that he didn't exist. Uh, the colonel told me that there was no Thomas Costello and that there was no security uh, guard position as described by Ann West and John Lear that he recalls. Being that DSD-3 is what he said was the security division there at Dulce. And there, there is an underground facility. It's not under the Archuleta Mesa. It's It's within Mount Archuleta, and it extends out to the Archuleta Mesa. And there are other areas. It's like the, there's these other areas that uh, extend out into the perimeter of the uh, of the township uh, away from uh, the Archuleta Mesa. It's a massive facility. And one of the things that people talk about often when they think about the Dulcie story is the Nightmare Hall. Well, there was a nightmare hall. Uh, it, it differs a little bit from the story that was put out by John Lear, but this was called the Maximum Containment Center 
and it was an area where they were doing a lot of uh, genetic experimentation on uh, super soldiers. There's a whole story that I can delve into with regards to that. But I think the most interesting thing is, is that the individual that I interviewed back in 2009 to 2010 really put together this semblance of information that when you look at it from the perspective of a civilian like me, I was never in the military. Um, it's something that it's something that just is mind blowing. The fact that there are gray alien beings working alongside facets of the military industrial complex in an underground facility. It's just amazing to me. And when I think about Los Alamos, when I think about Kirtland air force base, that entire region extending all the way up to uh, northern New Mexico, t- touching the southern border of Colorado and all the cattle mutilations. And I think back to some of the stories of uh, there was a sergeant, uh, there was an individual who was uh, uh, abducted and mutilated by the Greys, very much like the cattle was. It's a famous story. Um, there's something going on there. There's a There's enough information to confirm the veracity of the events that have emerged from all of New Mexico. Can you, tell us, little, can you tell us more about this Colonel X? I mean, you, you say you you, in, you personally interviewed him, so can you reveal more about, uh, you know, what his specialty was and uh, what, what it was? Uh, is he still alive, for example? I don't know if he's still alive. It's been a, it's been a, it's been a long time since I've spoken to him. But I can tell you this, I was in, I was writing a blog. I had a blog at Intel Corporation. This was at Intel Corporation. I was in charge of a bunch of servers. I worked at a department called IT at Intel. And on one of the, on one of the servers that I had uh, created on the intranet, geez, that's a term I haven't used in a long time, the intranet. That's how old I am. But uh, on the intranet, I had a server that was accessible to a large number of friends, employees within the company, coworkers. And they knew that I was writing articles. I was doing a blog before blogs existed, essentially, um, about Area 51, about human origins, uh, about quite a, you know, quite a few things with, re, with uh, relation to UFOs and UFO sightings. On one particular day, I got contacted by an individual about that blog, and it turns out this person was working there under an assumed identity and they themselves were in hiding. They had put me in contact with somebody who had told them about an occupation that they had had within the military working in northern New Mexico. That's how I got in contact with Colonel X. And he had agreed. They knew that I was writing a book. They knew that I was putting a book together for Area 51. And I had been in contact with Norio Hayakawa. And the entire trajectory of the book changed at that point. The moment I sat down and I heard from this colonel what it was that he had been through, um, he had talked about these Type X events. He talked about how he was part of a specialized unit that responded to any type of emergency incident that involved non-human craft, UFOs essentially. And through him... I gained a wealth of knowledge about the Murak expedition, uh, the meeting between Greys and the military, 
I remember you, you had spoken about, you know, 1954 Edwards Air Force Base. Well, guess what, Dr. Solid? Murak Army Airfield used to be, was the, was the, was the, was the precursor to Edwards Air Force uh, Base. And I, I wasn't aware of that at the time. It was uh, Norio Hayakala when I met with him who started giving me information about the history of the bases. And I had to put two and two together. And I realized there are some deep connections to the individuals involved with the story about Dulcie, the underground base, and the great aliens. Excuse me. <coughs> yes, uh, that Dulcie base, I mean, that that is something that uh, I remember when I first became interested in this UFO phenomenon. I actually wrote a big... Uh, I think it was like a 15,000-word uh, report about the Dulcie base, about what was happening there, and you know, kind of like did a literature review of all all the people. Uh, but you, know, you were you were kind of um, you were closer to the actual events, and you got to meet and talk with someone who was actually there. So I, I never got to do that. Uh, so yeah, a, a great to finally hear what one of these first-hand witnesses had to say about what was going on at, at Dulcie. Invited to the inaugural Dulcie-based UFO conference, and I spoke there with Linda Moulton Howe and uh, Greg Bishop and several other people. But prior to that, I had been there in 2000, 2011. I'd been there, well, I'd been to Dulcie in 2010, 2011, and I later went in, I believe, it was 2012. This is early on. And one of the things that struck me is when I did interviews with some of the families of the people that live there in Dulcie, there are some things that would, if I told you, which I'm going to tell you, would blow you away. For instance, I remember interviewing this one family, actually with a group of families. There was two, three families I was talking with. And they said that throughout the year, they will often hear traffic beneath their home. So I said, oh, wait a minute. I said, I had, I had to get clarification. I'm like, traffic like from outside your house? And they're like, no. Beneath our homes, we'll literally hear like trucks or like a train or something traveling beneath the, beneath the township of Dulcie. And that correlates with some of the information that I received from the colonel which was that there's a mag, there's an underground maglev system which extends from the Atoe building out in Los Alamos um, all the way up to Dulcie and then from Dulcie all, to all these other various locations. So there's a lot of interesting things that people tell about uh, in Dulcie. I remember I met with this one individual who was telling me about how she and her daughter had, had Grays visit them at night and ex- and perform medical experiments on them, and they were afflicted with paralysis. They couldn't move, yet they could see each other, and they could watch these beings conducting experimentation on them. One of them ended up getting cancer, and she was. It was as if she received cancer from whatever it was they were giving her or doing to her, and then years later they cured her of the cancer. It was, an, it was like a miracle. Whatever they did, they undid. These are the types of incidents that I have come across with Dulcie. I remember there was another uh, family that I had interviewed in Dulcie where they had gone out on a picnic. This, By the way, this was in the 70s. This was in the early 70s. Uh, this woman had gone with her mother and father to a picnic, 
right there in the township, and they had seen in broad daylight a UFO. And they were watching it, and the next thing you know, it was late late at night. They had they had lost time. When they woke up, they got back to their car. All the food had been, you know, was still set out. They didn't know what happened, except the three of them all had implants in their arms. They had these little tiny implants, which I I liken to RFID type chips, like small RFID chips. These are the types of things that happen in Dulcie that don't get written about, they don't get sp- uh, spoken about until 2016 when they held the inaugural uh, UFO, uh, the Dulcie based UFO conference. That was the first time that I had seen uh, residents of Dulcie starting to talk openly about these things. They were sharing them with, my, with, with me, Rick Prestel, Linda Moulton Howe, and <clears throat> Back in 2012, I had a a, a private conference with uh, Janet Saylor of the ASPE organization, Rick Prestel, who was a member of MUFON at the time. I was a member of MUFON at the time as well. And, or my membership may have have just lapsed at that point, but I still considered myself part of MUFON. Um, We met with the chief of police of the Taos Pueblo, of township right there. So, so there's Taos, New Mexico, and then there's Taos Pueblo. This is a, this is the uh, it's, it's an indigenous group. But we met with the chief of police, and he told us about over the course of 20 years how he had had a UFO incident years earlier when he was a police officer in Dulcie. I read about this in UFO Highway 2.0, the book that I also just released. He described in exact detail what Paul Benowitz described. He didn't even know who Paul Benowitz was, by the way. But he described the same UFO that Paul Benowitz had described, which I had learned about through Mal Fabregas of the Veritas uh, radio show, who he had sent me a PDF. And it was just it just blew me away. It was a, it was a conversation between Paul Benowitz in a local uh, UFO investigator, and the things that they had discussed were just amazing. Well, just for those that maybe don't know who Paul Benowitz is, I mean, <clears throat> he was a uh, an electronics uh, communications expert. I mean, right. he had his own company. He stumbled upon um, some very strange um, uh, electronic signals coming out of uh, Kirtland Air Force Base and uh, around the Dulce, Archaluda, Mesa. And uh, what was very interesting when he reported that to the um, Air Force Office of uh, uh, Special Investigations, they actually arranged for him to be given a, a lump of money. $75,000. To research this phenomenon. So there was something going on. So, yeah, you want to take up the story and tell us what, what, uh, how important Benowitz was and what, what he discovered? Well, you know, I, I, I had recently written an article called Unraveling the Secrets of the Dulcie Underground Base, a UFO researcher's perspective. And the story of Paul Benowitz and the alleged existence of the underground base, uh, you know, today it still stands as a perplexing enigma. We know that. I remember that uh, you had done a review of Greg Bishop's book, Project Beta. And that, to me, that just fascinated me. 
And essentially what most people are unaware of is that Paul Benowitz, like, like you said, had discovered uh, radio signals which he believed were of, there were alien signals and that he had traced back to the Dulce uh, township, that area. Uh, in particular, the Archuleta, the, not the Archuleta Mesa, Mount Archuleta. And <clears throat> he had shared that information with AFOSI out of Kirtland Air Force Base. And it's funny to me, though, that individuals who were initially uh, resident about, uh, reticent about uh, entertaining him ultimately gave him a $75,000 grant and I think the only reason why they did that was because it was plausible that the electronic interceptions had unveiled something of a genuine, genuine national security interest. But Dr. Sala, I think it had to do with aliens. I think it had to do with the great aliens that exist there in Dulce, New Mexico, and the ones who work uh, somewhere within the vicinity of Los Alamos National, uh, Los Alamos National Labs. I, I agree, and uh, you know, I mean, you mentioned that uh, book review I did of uh, Project Better. That mm. was, uh, that was uh, by Greg Bishop, and uh, yeah, I just made the point that I my thought was that uh, Benowitz really did intercept uh, some radio communications or some high frequency uh, communications from extraterrestrials, and that uh, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations knew that it was real. They funded him because they wanted to find out what was going on, and so they enabled him to dig up a, a lot of information. And then they had one of their operatives, uh, Richard Doty, mm-hmm. uh, befriend uh, Paul Benowitz, and, and he kind of started to do some very strange things, throw in a lot of disinformation. But, you know, the point is, and I think you, you made that same point when we communicated prior to this interview, that uh, the, the, the most effective disinformation is disinformation which is based on truth but is spun in a way to misdirect a person or to get them to go down a dead end. And that's what they wanted to do with, with Benowitz. To, you know, they wanted to suck out of him mm-hmm. all the useful data that was relevant to AFOSI, a- 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 but then to steer him in this towards this dead end. And uh, so, yeah, you want to take up uh, the story... From that. Right. Well, Doty played a pivotal role in disseminating the disinformation to Benowitz. And what you had said, which I thought was brilliant, was that the questioning of whether or not uh, we should trust the, those, in, those particular individuals that were involved in the disinformation campaign. For instance, today, Richard Doty is a regular at UFO conferences. In the early days, uh, it was uh, 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 William Moore. Was it William Moore and Doty? People were highly opposed to them being anywhere near a UFO conference because of the nature of the work that they had done uh, with regards to Benowitz, providing him all this false information. Not to mention the fact that Richard Doty had his own inter- interactions with Linda Moulton Howe, if you recall, and he had. He had finally provided her with insight to what she had already known, what many UFO researchers had already known, but he gave her access to classified documentation that detailed the true nature and the true existence of what the military had been involved in with, with regards 
to UFOs and non-human entities, aliens, for several decades, possibly going all the way back to the 40s. But it's still an enigma that's persisting to this day. Um, benefits, uh, the story of Paul Benowitz um, challenged everyone's perceptions, knowing that AFOSI would be willing to, to feed him such high levels of disinformation to the point where it drove him mad and ultimately put him in an insane asylum where he died. It is a very sad what, what, what happened to him because he's a good example of, of a scientist who discovers something genuine happening with mm-hmm. um, extraterrestrials that is of interest to the intelligence community, but they swarm all over it and they take possession of all of the relevant information and then they discredit the people, uh, especially private civilians that were involved in that. That's their MO. You know, they suck out all the information and uh, and then the individuals, uh, they misdirect or or um, they discredit in some way, and that's what happened to Benowitz. And, yes, he died, I think, a very uh, uh, unhappy man, suffering mm-hmm. a nervous breakdown because of all the things that were happening to him. And, and you're quite right. Richard Doty and William Moore were, were people involved in this disinformation campaign, or at least Richard Moore reported on it, but Doty, actually I think Moore was also involved, as I recall. And But yes, uh, Doty and Moore were ostracised for that uh, with, by the UFO community, but now they're kind of like front and centre putting out a lot of information. And uh, you know, so you do have to kind of question, what, why is that? Why are these, uh, why is a disinformation person like Richard Doty? Right. And you still have to take whatever they say with a grain of salt because you, you just don't know. I mean, to this day, Richard Doty could still be a part of a PSYOP, a psychological operation, uh, continuing to throw UF, genuine UFO researchers off the track of what's truly happening uh, within the military, within the government, and within the private sector, the military-industrial complex. Who knows what's going on? But... Um, I think, uh, yeah, ultimately it was a tragedy with what happened to uh, Paul Benowitz. I remember Norio Hayakawa took me out. Uh, we, we we drove up to the, the previous, uh, as a matter of fact, I think at the time the family still lived at the residence of Benowitz's house. We went to Thunder Scientific. We saw the building. We went to Kirtland Air Force Base. Uh, we did everything. We did the tour. and It was just Norio and myself. But I couldn't help but think throughout that entire trip that Norio and I did about the tragic nature and the ultimate demise of Benowitz based on what was done to him by AFOSI. Well, I want to just, um, I mean, so we know that historically there are these really important cases of uh, UFO contact and uh, deep underground military bases involving extraterrestrials. Uh, and and that that history is something that's glossed over by this kind of new wave of uh, scientists and investigators that are focused on you know 2004 is their ground zero the Nimitz incident the Princeton mm. kind of uh, incidents. So I want to like now focus on what you discuss in your more recent book um, uh, UFO Nexus. Uh, you sent me a, a copy which I, I read right. through. Um, he really did a fast read, uh, and uh, I think it's a very good primer. I think it's a very good way of people that are 
wanting to make sense of this uh, phenomenon, all the aspects and some of the history, they can uh, get UFO Nexus. So, uh, yeah, you want to maybe tell us a little bit about what prompted you to write this book? Okay, so when the when the Congressional Subcommittee hearings happened and we first saw David Grush, Ryan Graves, David Fravert, this is back in July 26, 2023. This was the hearing on UAPs. I thought to myself, <clears throat> it would be important for somebody like me to document every single word that each one of them said and then analyze every single sentence, do a comparative analysis, and then determine are these three individuals telling the truth? One, I think they are telling the truth. But two, we have to remember something very important. David Grush is a former counterintelligence officer. And what does counterintelligence excel at doing? Obfuscating the truth. Uh, distorting reality. Throwing people off the track. You know, a lot of people are calling David Grush a whistleblower. I don't think he's a whistleblower in the traditional sense, and this is this is my opinion. And this is my reason why. Because he is still bound to the rules and whatever protocol is set in place with regards to his former position as a counterintelligence officer to the Pentagon. <clears throat> Nothing that he discloses publicly can be said without having gotten permission, received permission first from the Pentagon. Yet he's on a quest to educate all of us about everything that he learned about while <clears throat> in his position. For instance, one of the things that he talked about was in 1933 in Magenta, Italy. This is 14 years prior to the Roswell incident that happened in uh, 1947. He claims that the that Mussolini had come into uh, contact with a, a crash retrieval, a UFO that had crashed there in Magenta, Italy. They were unaware of what the nature of this thing was. They thought it was from the Germans. Ultimately, they contacted the Germans. The Germans said, it's not us, but they both got involved with one another. I would imagine they started to study this crap. There are so many open-ended questions as to the genesis of the UFO that purportedly crashed in Magenta, Italy. For instance, was that enough time for the Germans to begin tinkering and reverse engineering and developing their own technology, which far surpassed everybody else on the planet at that time? I mean, had they just had a few more months at the end of World War II, they were about to unleash a whole slew of rockets and jet uh, uh, jet propulsion uh, engines for their aircraft that would have tilt uh, would have tipped the balance in their favor. And so, I really wanted to uh, do an analysis of what it was they were reporting to us through their testimony in July 26. And from that, I wanted to gain insight into whether or not it was a psychological operation. I will tell you this: I do think. Like John D'Souza said on the show that you did with John D'Souza, he has a lot of trepidation with regards to believing 
the uh, the validity of such events like the Soul Symposium, you know, thrown by uh, uh, what's the gentleman's name, uh, Gary Nolan. Gary Nolan, and uh, again, I was shocked to uh, find out that David Grush became the COO of the organization that they had put together. Um, and so I I I tend to think that what we're learning right now. And how it pertains to us as individuals, the military as an interested party with regards to national security implications, uh, with regards to the advancement of adversaries who could potentially obtain UAP technology. There's a lot of open-ended questions. And um, I try to answer as many of them as possible within the book that I wrote. And I, I try to give a, a, a yes perspective versus a no perspective on all the different things that I covered. Um, so I talk about the, the Tic Tac UFO in detail. Um, I go so far as to uh, do an, uh, an entire analysis of the incident from my own perspective. And then I ask, is the Tic Tac UFO uh, a product of reverse engineering? Is it uh, an element that... Uh, that is from a legacy, this rich legacy of potential reverse engineering that has happened since the 1940s here in the United States and with uh, our partners in the Five Eyes uh, Alliance, the Five E Alliance, the Five Eyes. So I don't know. I do my best to to to, to uh, advocate for traditional UFO uh, researchers and put together correlations with things that are happening now. For instance, the Las Vegas UFO and alien incident. That was a strange incident that occurred in April of this year, on April 30th, leading into midnight, May 1st, the, the next day. You have a family that claims that they witnessed a craft land in their backyard, which is this huge ba- backyard where they had a bunch of tractor trailers and trucks, gravel, gravel yard, <clears throat> Um, they literally called 911 out of fear. They were terrified of what they saw. They heard footsteps on their roof. They claimed to have seen two aliens between 8 and 10 feet tall. And the police at the very time, the, the, the Las Vegas Metro Police, at the very moment that the family called 911, had seen a blue-green streak, potentially a meteorite, as with a lot of people... Uh, claimed that it was, fly over the city. And at that, also at that same moment, in another part of Las Vegas, there was a house with a ring camera where the entire neighborhood lit up and you heard this tremendous noise and all of that occurred at once. And there was this, there was this culmination of events that took place after the fact. For instance, they installed a camera on the residence of this family uh, the family was never punished for calling 911. It's a felony to call 911 as part of a hoax. Um, they had uh, individuals, men in black, essentially show up, ask questions, uh, and per- participate with the Las Vegas uh, Metropolitan Police Department who had installed the uh, the camera. Uh, there were so many oddities occurring. We have to ask do events like this hold credibility? 
I tend to think that they do. A lot of people try to write these off as a hoax, but I, I just don't think, based on everything that I've read, everything that I've seen, everything that I've heard with regards to the family, uh, Greg Papa, who's an independent investigator who did his own work, uh, he, he did a full interview with Ashley Banfield from News Nation. Uh, the police officers themselves, one of the, one of the funny things about that evening was that the minute they walked into the backyard, they turned off the body cams. They turned them off. And it's like, or, or at least they, uh, they, they uh, obfuscated the, the view for out of concerns of privacy. Let me ask you something. When does the police ever turn those things off? Because of out of the out of concerns of privacy of the people that are reporting, almost never. So that that stood out as an oddity to me. Uh, again, le- lending uh, credence to the fact that something was being hidden from the public that occurred at that home on that evening. That was a very strange incident, and it's in. And what was interesting <clears throat> was that, uh, that only uh, a couple of months after that, you had. Something similar happening in Peru involving these uh, beings um, abducting or trying to abduct some of the children from these uh, villages there in the Amazonian region. And, uh, you know, this was all happening during a time when the US and Peru were conducting joint military exercises. So you, you do have to ask, is, was this all part of some conditioning program for a false flag event like John D'Souza was predicting, and I think he still holds that view, mm-hmm. that, that we're on the verge of a false flag event involving extraterrestrials. And you know, I have to look at everything that's happening now, you know, this crass, and we mentioned it already, this kind of like really accelerated effort to get people on board with UFOs being a serious topic after after what is it, uh, 60 years right. of editing and ridiculing the phenomenon. Now, since 2017 to, to the present is like six years. So it's like for every 10 years of ridicule, now it's like one year of getting people up to speed that UFOs are a national security threat. So, you know, is this where we get this kind of false flag alien event or an attempt or a psyop? It might not be an actual mm-hmm. uh, some kind of... <clears throat> false flag event, an attack, it might be just a psyop, some, something like, um, you know, that's very mysterious that we don't know. So, you know, like this incident in Las Vegas, like the incident in Peru, could could that be a model for something happening at a larger scale? I think so. You know, I think so. I think and what, what what's happening is the more that the government discusses these types of incidents publicly, uh, and through the media, the more interest the public is going to take. But at the same time, we're talking about a public who's been conditioned over decades to accept the existence of non-human entities and uh, UFOs. So, you know, the other thing I think about, too, is when we look at the Soul Symposium, when we look at the congressional hearings, there's so many things that they're talking about behind doors that we need to be privy to strategic alliances building and maintaining strategic alliances is crucial with our allies because China and Russia should they manage to acquire UAP technology and by the way I've spoken to UFO researchers who have told me that uh, with the massive uh, 
geographical sizes of both China and Russia, it is almost uh, it is almost guaranteed that over the decades they too have retrieved crashed UFOs and have begun to tinker and reverse engineer with the technology very similar to what the West has uh, been performing with. So when you think about uh, strategic alliances, uh, they're going to try and ensure that no single nation is left behind and promotes uh, a united human front, meaning we're going to see, let's, let's say, for instance, there is a non-human entity that we ultimately encounter. Are you familiar with uh, former CIA agent John uh, Hernandez, who says that in 2027, aliens are going to reveal themselves? A lot of people used to think this was ludicrous. Not so much anymore. <clears throat> Is that that's John why, Ramirez? John Ramirez. And that's why we are now talking about space policy development, technological readiness. We're seeing lots of public engagement. Uh, and, and, and with the Soul Symposium, what are we seeing? We're seeing a, a, a confluence of interdisciplinary research groups. We're seeing the military. We're seeing academia. We're seeing everybody come together in preparation for this eventual disclosure event. And by the way, if you look at the leaked document from the Seoul Symposium, which was not supposed to be seen by anybody outside of the attendees, it showed a clear path to 2030 because they believe that we are in a secret arms race with the adversaries of the West over UAP technology. And whoever has it will, you know, assert technical uh, dominance over everybody else. And uh, there, there clearly is a national security uh, risk uh, as an implication uh, that why all this is coming up. Well, that uh, takes us to a key question, which is that according to David Grush and Bob Lazar's testimony, Eric Davis, that uh, the U.S. has recovered some crashed UFO data, uh, debris. This does involve non-human intelligence. These are being studied in corporate laboratories, but there you have then you have this idea that, well, these efforts to reverse engineer the craft are, have been unsuccessful. That the, the craft is just too advanced. It's like dropping mm-hmm. an iPhone into uh, into the jungles of Papua New Guinea or something, and and the shaman looks at it and says, well, you know, uh, tries to work it out. It, it's not possible that. And and to me, that's you know that flies in the face of what a lot of other whistleblowers mm. and uh, insiders have revealed. That yes, uh, not only do we have these uh, extraterrestrial spacecraft in our possession, and that they've been studying and reverse engineering these for decades, but these reverse engineering efforts have been successful. So, so what do you think about that? I mean, is this again um, another psyop? Is this a, a kind of limited hangout? Uh, to like put out this idea that yes, we've got these craft, but reverse engineering efforts have been unsuccessful. Well, when I think about the military industrial complex, specifically uh, aerospace companies, and the fact that we know from uh, Phil Corso, this is back in the 40s and 50s, was leaking. Uh, technology to semiconductor companies, aerospace companies, they've had ample time to 
perform the, the necessary research and ultimately the reverse engineering of these technologies. We're talking about metamaterials that ultimately led into development of our stealth technology or integrated circuitry, fiber optics, uh, night vision. I mean, this is according to Phil Corso. A lot of people tend to argue that fact, but I tend to agree with what he said. As a matter of fact, the colonel that I interviewed alluded to a lot of the information from Phil Corso being absolutely truthful. So when I think of the aircraft, or excuse me, the UAP crap that we are now seeing, is it possible that we are witnessing a remnant of the legacy of reverse engineering that has taken place uh, here in the United States and amongst our allies? The answer is yes. If you go back to 2016 over Beaver Valley in Utah, there was a craft that was seen traveling at an enormous rate of speed. Uh, of course, defying all the uh, known laws of physics no, and, and not uh, tenable for any human pilot, meaning a lot of the UAP crap that we're seeing is perhaps born of the technology that we have reverse, reverse engineered, but I will say this. I don't think humans are piloting these craft. I think we are witnessing autonomous systems or remote systems, i.e. drone systems, that are piloting these systems. And it is possible that in some cases, artificial general intelligence, which is the, which is a step up from traditional artificial intelligence, this is where the, uh, the, 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 the computer technology, the server technology essentially develops sentience to the point that it's now equivalent to a living, thinking human being. And that's something that we're, uh, witnessing with open AI and QSTAR. That's a whole nother story. But, um, and that's what led to Sam Altman being fired by the board, but within 24 hours being reinstated by Microsoft was one of the investors. He was secretly uh, working on QSTAR, which is artificial general intelligence. I bring that up, Dr. Soller, because this is important. Artificial general intelligence is us creating a non-human entity, which has the ability to outthink, outperform, and outwit us by multiple exponential factors that we just can't even conceive of. When we developed transformers, well, these are sentence transformers, which ultimately involved in logic transformers for artificial intelligence, we enabled these systems to become far superior to any level of human intelligence. You can, you can give me the most intelligent people on the planet, and they couldn't hold a candle to what we are developing in these labs at OpenAI and all the other uh, various Places. Not to mention, in the future, we're going to have quantum computing that will house artificial intelligence, language models, logic models. We are literally creating aliens, and we don't realize it. We're creating our own non-human entities with intelligence that is far superior. But when I go back to talking about the UAP craft that defy the known laws of physics, it would take an artificial general intelligence or some semblance of an autonomous system 
possibly paired with a human remote drone operator to <clears throat> to pilot these craft. The, what we are seeing uh, over our oceans, off the coast of California in 2019, uh, or as witnessed by uh, the USS Princeton and the USS Nimitz in 2004, these are things that pi- human pilots could not manage. They wouldn't survive the rate of speed, the rate of elevation, and, uh, and immediate deceleration. It's just not not tenable for a human body. Well, I wanted to bring up the um, testimony of Edgar Fouchet, who discusses the TR-3B, mm-hmm. and he, he describes it actually having uh, utilizing torsion field physics, where you, there's a, um, a highly pressurized plasma circulating in a circular uh, tube or chamber around the craft. It's a, it's a triangle-shaped craft. Mm-hmm. And it says it reduces the weight or, or the weightless. It creates this well, – it's not quite weightless. It reduces the overall mass of the craft by a factor of, I think it was 87%. Wow. So, so whoever are the occupants, I mean, the laws of inertia would now apply where, okay, rather than – uh, then being able to withstand, say, 10G, I think, a national con- – or maybe 20G, I think, is the record. But now if if your mass is reduced by, by that amount, you could withstand, say, 100G. Uh, and, and so then that raises the question, well, is this how they're doing it? it these reverse-engineered craft, they employ some kind of um, – some kind of um, torus uh, mm-hmm. or some kind of uh, plasma – reducing the overall weight, maybe they can get it up to 98, 99%. Uh, and so that way you can get these very high speeds. So you want to talk about Edgar Fouché and his testimony, because I know he did work at Area 51. I mean, he and he's one of these uh, witnesses or whistleblowers who right. has the credentials to prove that, yeah, he was at Area 51, and, and this is where he says these craft were operating out of. I remember seeing uh, the, the 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 presentation that he gave. Uh, he, his wife had introduced him, and uh, it was a beautiful presentation that he had gave given. And it takes me back to the time when we started. I think it was I forget what country it was in Europe where they actually had seen the TR3B. Belgium. Belgium. That's right. The Belgium UFO incident. By the way, and I had received information from Michael Schratt who I'd met with personally, and he had shared some information with me, schematics on the potential uh, design aspects of the TR-3B, and we had discussed the possible uh, the possible modes of propulsion, how it is done. I don't remember everything, but I do remember this. If Edgar Fouché was correct in his assumption in how the propulsion was and how the... Uh, the craft, the craft attained its level of mass for its occupants. It very well could be something that we're seeing on a regular basis. If you go to the Stephenville incident in uh, what was it, 2009, Stephenville, Texas, that was a massive triangle that they saw. Some people in the night in 1997 over Phoenix, Arizona, the Phoenix Lights incident. Some people reported seeing that as a massive mile-wide triangle. And we have a lot of incidents. There was one here in Fremont, California, a very famous case in Fremont, California, where a, 
a massive triangle craft was seen. Makes me think of the TR-3B. Is that what we're seeing, different variants of the TR-3B? Only, you know, only those who were involved with the development of these craft would know how many different variants exist of the craft. What we saw over Texas may not be what we saw over over Arizona and California. Uh, incidentally, the, the, the Phoenix craft did fly over Nevada and into Arizona. So there is that possibility. Well, uh, I just wanted to uh, raise uh, one example mm. of someone who has been in one of these uh, flying triangle-shaped craft. Uh, he's a military witness. Uh, he's currently serving with the U.S. Army. I've, uh, I used the pseudonym JP to refer to him, and he says he's been in some of these uh, TR-3Bs, and he's also been inside of a flying rectangle. So uh, a, lo- a lot of people have similar stories of being inside of these craft as part of a secret space program. What makes JP unusual is that he's taken photographs. He's actually got photographs. He's sent me dozens of photographs. People always say, where's the evidence for these wild claims? Mm. He's got photographs. He said he went on a a rectangle-shaped craft and he saw people wearing um, U.S. Air Force Special Operations patches. So he identified the patch of the people on these flying rectangle crafts. So uh, so here's one example, and there are many others that say that, uh, yes, indeed, these uh, secret space programs exist. Uh, they're being flown by the Navy, by Air Force Special Operations, or mm-hmm. now Space Force. And uh, I, I think that this is part of the rationale for creating Space Force and, and uh, Space Command now is to kind of like white world right. the classified program. So yeah, you want to comment about that? Do you remember do you remember in the mid 2000s China had announced that they had destroyed uh, one of their aging weather satellites out of low earth orbit and using a, a terrestrial laser based system. Well, give me one second. <clears throat> uh, yes, I remember that incident. Uh, yeah, that, that was uh, any satellite uh, Right. Well, I find it odd that one of the uh, one of the directives that has come out of the uh, the Chinese military and the Russian military is the ability to destroy satellites from uh, terrestrial based laser systems. Not too long after that, the United States uh, developed the uh, the Boeing X thirty seven B, which spent two hundred and eighty seven days on classified mission around the planet. Um, we're seeing levels of technology take these uh, exponential leaps. And as a matter of fact, just a couple of weeks ago, China just uh, uh, launched a secret spy satellite. Uh, one that uh, many people within the, the Department of Defense uh, theorized that was meant to uh, focus on the uh, the U.S.'s latest uh, spy satellite efforts. This is the reason why we are now uh, seeing uh, the propagation of the United States Space Force. Uh, The Space Force, I know you wrote a book on the Space Force because I just bought that book for my son for Christmas, by the way. Um, The Space Force, because my son is is, is thinking about joining the Space Force, just so you know. Um, The Space Force uh, is going to play a pivotal role, uh, of course, 
from the government uh, perspective and from the military's perspective with uh, regards to uh, uh, national security interest because we're seeing all of our adversaries begin to perform the same thing. You know there's eventually going to be a, a war fought on the moon over resources between India, uh, China, the United States, Russia. I'm not sure about Russia at this point, but definitely India just landed there. Uh, Israel tried to land there, and their, their craft had recently crashed. Um, but we're going to see um, struggles between uh, superpowers over resources on the moon and perhaps uh, mining operations in the asteroid belt. All of this, not to mention uh, Elon Musk talking about uh, creating bases uh, on Mars. Uh, you know, uh, so there's so much happening right now. And I, I think that in order for us to truly accomplish this beyond the conventional propulsion, you know, rocketry that we currently possess, it's going to take the uh, implementation of otherworldly propulsion systems that are potentially based off of reverse-engineered UFOs, UAPs, and not shock everybody. But when, when we put the when we put the wheels into motion and we start revealing the existence of these craft, perhaps the TR-3B is a precursor to what we're going to see within the next seven to ten years. You have John Ramirez saying that aliens are going to reveal themselves in 2027. And you have uh, U.S. Retired U.S. Colonel, uh, Army Colonel uh, Carl Nell saying that we are in a secret uh, arms race to be the first to uh, announce uh, the, the UAP disclosure by 2030. A lot of stuff is happening. Well, indeed there is. And I, I wanted to uh, give you the opportunity to tell us about your upcoming book, uh, The Modern UFO UAP Researchers Handbook. And I know that is going to be available uh, sometime in January. So mm -hmm. you want to tell us about that and uh, what else you're doing over the next few months? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, The Modern UFO UAP Research Handbook, it's a traditional uh handbook uh, that has all the information that you're accustomed to seeing, but it goes beyond that. Um, I believe that the um, the glossary that I've assembled, the, the protocols that I have put into place for researching UFO sightings and UFO crash sites are unlike anything you've ever seen before. I literally tell people how they can uh, collect soil samples from crash sites and have them analyzed by the University of Florida. I mean, I, I, I show everybody how to do things that they've never thought of before. And there's a lot of history in this book, too. I don't just talk about, uh, you know, researching uh, UFO sightings and crash sites. I also talk about the history of ufology. And I delve a little bit into the contemporary uh, means to research uh, UFOs. For instance... We, we, a lot of UFO researchers are still using the, the Heineck classification system, which goes back to the 1960s and the, uh, the Jacques Vallée classification system. I've developed something called the SP23, which goes beyond the C1 to C5 close encounter, uh, classification. I go from C6 up to C12 and I factor in all of this new technology, uh, new types of events, 
new types of incidents that have happened over the past 35, 40 years that we can now attribute to a newer type of classification scale. And by the way, if you go to my website, uh, ufocurrents.com, at the website, you'll see that on the books page, if you click on the books tab, uh, there is a free link uh, beneath the uh, Modern UFO Researcher Handbook to what I call the UFO UAP Witness Questionnaire and Report Form. Now, I've had people from MUFON look at this, and they think it's great. But what's important is that inside of that uh, PDF file, I talk about the SP-23 Close Encounter Type Expansion Classification. So CE-6 is direct communication. That's communication in cases that are typically nonverbal and may encompass the exchange of complex thoughts or emotions. CE-7 is biological effects. These are these can be immediate or manifest over time effects that may include physical markings, altered health states, or, or psychological transformations. And then I go on. There's CE-8 all the way to CE-12. Uh, interestingly, CE-12 is based on temporal distortion. These are uh, the characteristics of the CE-12 are time distortion closely correlated with the presence or proximity of a UFO or UAP. So it's really, uh, it's a really contemporary way of uh, adding on to these already incredible classification systems from both uh, Heineck and uh, Valet. Um, I just give my own perspective. And this was developed with uh, fellow researcher uh, Rick Prestel, Richard J. Prestel, and that's why we call it the SP-23. It's the Sanchez Prestel 23 Close Encounter Type Expansion Classification, the SP-23. And it's free for everybody to uh, look. And I think that if they look at that PDF, which is free at ufocurrents.com, they're going to see that the, the follow-up actions are important on how to contact a witness, how to interview a witness, uh, what's the importance of witness anonymity, uh, environmental analysis. Everything is included. And I think people are really going to like this book. Well, thank you, Anthony, for sharing uh, a wealth of information going back uh, now spanning four decades that you've been uh, doing UFO research. So very happy to have you on ExoPolitics today, and I look forward to having you back. It was an honor to speak with you, Dr. Salop. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You have been listening to ExoPolitics today with Dr. Michael Salop. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com. Mm-hmm.